0: Uh, you indeed were not just a regular person. Uh, you were the Messiah. You were Messiah God, the Son of God, one worthy to be worshipped. So, Lord, may we be among true worshippers, and if we're not there yet, may the Holy Spirit have His way as we study the Word of God to bring us uh, to that point. For indeed, you are uh, seeking for true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. So we commit our study to you now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we uh, note on the outline, we are at uh, the section of chapters 14 through 16, the the revelations of the king. Uh, Matthew writes to show that Jesus is Israel's Messiah God, just as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, and all the prerequisites necessary to be the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus. He has the right lineage, he has the right character, he has the right wisdom, he has the right power. Fulfilling prophecy in keeping with kingdom truth. Everything lines up with Jesus being the Messiah. What the Old Testament through inspired prophecy predicted is fulfilled to the letter in Jesus of Nazareth. The coming Messiah was to be a unique person, he would be the God man doing kingdom miracles. And these miracles, often called signs and wonders, are presented really in terms of three categories, consisting of, one, miraculous power over sickness and disease, number two, miracles over Satan and demons, and number three, miracles over nature. Matthew 14 emphasizes Christ's unique power over nature. The apostles, while empowered on some level to do miracles in Christ's name over disease and demons, never performed miracles over nature. This was unique to Christ alone. Last time in our study, we saw Christ performing a nature miracle, a creation miracle, as he fed 5,000 with one little boy's lunch, comprised of five small loaves and two fish. Well, today we see Christ's power exhibited over nature as he walks on water and stills the storm. And we pick up our study, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The context here is that Jesus had just miraculously fed the 5,000, probably more like 20,000 when you include women and children in the mix. And the response on that occasion was, we really like free lunch, right? <laughs> we, we like this. This is very good. So much so, I think we should nominate Jesus to be king and have free lunch every day. That's really what it amounted to. Uh, we read in John chapter 6, <clears throat> then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is a feeding of the 5,000. When they, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet, the Messianic prophet, who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus, knowing their intentions, sent his disciples away by boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, And then proceeded to send the multitudes away. Again, Jesus, ever being the Lord, was in command of the disciples, sending them out to sea and also sending the multitudes away. He's always in charge everywhere. Now, the language here, made his disciples get into the boat and go, is very forceful. Made is the idea of compelled. William Mount says, it suggests that the disciples would have liked to stay. And share in the excitement of the crowd. I mean, who doesn't like this idea? We're all aboard. We're all going into the kingdom. Yeah, let's let's do this. They probably were like, "Yeah, this this is a good this is a good movement. Things are moving in our direction." But as was so often the case, both the multitudes as well as the disciples were out of sync with the will of God. The timing and the way it was being forced was not right. You see, Christ being coronated as king has to be in accordance with God's terms. And his terms are accepting Christ for who he is as Messiah God. You know, Jesus is not going to come back at the second coming until Israel finally comes to recognize him for who he is as Messiah God. And they call on him for deliverance. The one who can save them as the whole world is at that point pitted against Israel. They have nowhere to look but up and they finally do look to Jesus as their Messiah. Then he will come to their deliverance. Well, this, the crowd that is recognizing Jesus for who he is as Messiah God, this the crowd was not willing to do as was to clearly be seen the next day in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 verse 17 says the disciples in their boat headed towards Capernaum, while Mark 6.45 says they headed towards Bethsaida. Now, the Bethsaida in view was close to Capernaum. So to kind of head out in that direction, you, you know, you're kind of headed p- towards both. Uh, when you put it all together, it seems that they, were, they left the area of Bethsaida, Bethsaida Julius and headed for Bethsaida Galilee on the other side of the lake. So I want you to note, we, we talked about this a little bit last time, They've been over here on this side of the lake, Bethsaida Julius, in that area. Christ sends them uh, now to go to the other side of the lake. And we think that ultimately they're headed here for this Bethsaida, Bethsaida Galilee. So they left Bethsaida to go to Bethsaida. That sounds a little funny unless you understand that there are two Bethsaidas, right? Which was the case here. So here Christ sends them, gets them on their way, and he sends the crowd away. And now he goes up into a mountain to spend time alone in prayer. And that's what we read in verse 23. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Recall that the reason they came to the area of Bethsaida Julius in the first place was for some R&R, some rest and relaxation. We know this because back in Mark chapter 6, parallel passage, He said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. That's a problem, right? When you're so busy in ministry, you don't even have time to eat. Uh, That was their situation. So he he said, let's let's go aside to a a place to rest. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. That was uh, Bethsaida Julius, Now, in the busyness of life, we we often need times when we can just get away from it all for a while. The old saying, we need to come apart or we will come apart, rings true. Uh, We all need periods of rest when we can take a break. However, as we have followed the story, the multitudes quickly caught up with Jesus in this deserted place where they were intending to get some R&R. And now having fed them, they were wanting to forcibly make him king. However, Jesus sent them all away and once again seeks time alone. Thus, he finally did have some alone time all by himself with just uh, him and God the Father. Now it is noteworthy that Jesus knew the reality of a constant struggle to find some time alone where he could just spend time in prayer. The crowds were ever there, hounding him wherever he went. The pressures of ministry were ever there. And one has to be very intentional in this matter of a quiet time, spending time alone with God, or it won't happen. Uh, The pressures of life are always there, Uh, and so it was for Jesus as well. In the pressures and busyness of ministry, even Christ at times felt the need to get away all by himself for a season of prayer. Psalm 62.8 says, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. There are times you just, you just need to get away and just, and just pour, have a session with God. And Jesus was doing that here. By the way, often our way of coping is quite man-centered, but for Jesus in his state of humility, it was really all God-centered. John Phillips says, There is something awesome in the Lord's desire for tranquility, something that rebukes our neglect for the place of prayer. And I think they kind of go together. The place of tranquility for the Lord was the place of prayer, getting away just him and God in prayer. Well, in Jewish reckoning, there were two evenings. There was the early evening, which amounted to late afternoon, and then there was the evening after sunset when it was dark. Jesus fed the multitude in the evening of late afternoon, as we saw in verse 15, but in view here is the evening of darkness. And here we find Jesus on a mountain Alone, all by himself in prayer. This was, in effect, renewal time. This was prep time for what lie ahead. And Jesus is the ultimate model who handled life with prayer. Verse 24 Jesus on the mountain praying, disciples in the sea rowing. Verse 24 But the boat was now in the middle of the sea. Middle of the sea. Tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. John 6.19 says they had rowed about 25 or 30 stata, stadia. A, a stadia was about 600 feet, so when you do the math, they were about three to four miles out on the lake, or as Matthew 14.24 here says, in the middle of the sea. Now understand the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide at, at its widest Point, and about 13 miles long and about 140 feet deep. Uh, note the Sea of Galilee here. So we're talking, you know, its widest part here, about eight miles across, 13 miles this way, 140 feet deep. Uh, sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. By the way, it's it's the key water basin as far as Israel's fresh water today. And uh, so it's a uh, freshwater lake and I already said this, 13 miles by 8 miles, uh, lies 686 feet below sea level, but it is surrounded by a stip, uh, steep cliffs and hills creating strong, swirling winds. And so it's known uh, for ferocious storms that come up suddenly, bringing about great uh, squalls of, of wind uh, from the surrounding hills and canyons that sweep across the lake, stirring up dangerous billows and waves. Well, it is surmised that perhaps they were in a small fishing boat owned perhaps by Peter and John. We're not given the details. But a 2,000-year-old fishing boat has been found on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it could hold 15 men. It was about 27 feet long, 7 1/2 feet wide, and 4 1/2 feet high. And so note uh, a picture here. A boat probably looks something similar to this. Well, here they were in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves with a contrary wind. Howard Voss makes a good point here. He says, It is significant to note that the disciples found themselves in great difficulty while they were following the direct command of Christ. That's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Commonly, modern believers feel that dire circumstances must be an indication they are out of the will of God. Evidently, such a conclusion often is unwarranted. Christ sends them into this storm. I mean, they're here in the will of God. This is where Christ said, I want you to go, cross to the other side. We're trying. <laughs> well, sometimes God has a purpose for sending you into a storm. You don't say, well, well, I'm in a storm here. It must be out of the will of God. No, maybe you are right where God wants you. He's wanting to do something in this storm. He uses storms in our lives as well as seasons of calm. Verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So he's done praying there on the mountain, and he now comes walking to them on the sea. It says it was the fourth watch. The Romans divided the night into four watches of three-hour increments. The fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so somewhere in that framework. Now, it seemed from the context that Jesus had sent the disciples to cross the sea about eight or nine hours previous to this. So, so evidently, they'd been toiling and struggling out there for a long time trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. And I mean, a long night of rowing against the wind and contending with great billows of water, that would exhaust you. I would think he'd short order. You ever been a rowing? You know, it looks like a great time. We're going to get out in the canoe and we're going to go rowing. About 15 minutes in, you think, man, I wish we had a motor on this thing, Right? <laughs> And here they are, all night they're struggling with this. And it's as if Jesus waited until they had exhausted themselves, exhausted their resources. And then here he comes, walking on the sea. I mean, he's been, he knows where they're at the whole entire time. And in all of this, Jesus is teaching them. In feeding the 5,000, he was teaching them that without him, they could do nothing And now in the storm, He is about to teach them that He is the answer to every impossible situation in the storm and that we are totally dependent upon Him. Again, He is teaching them about dependence upon Him. This is one of the most important lessons in life, by the way, that we can ever learn. I love that song. I've been listening to it all week. He giveth more grace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's forgiving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Wow, uh, what a great lesson here. They are kind of coming to the end of themselves. I mean, eight, nine hours? Are we ever going to get across? I mean, he said to go to cross. Are we going to get there? Well, not without his help. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. The text plainly says Jesus was walking on the sea. Twice it says this. Verse 25 and again in verse 26. And this shows that Jesus is Lord of creation who rules over nature. Corresponds to verses like we find here in Job 9.8, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Talk about, you know, you've got some uh, figurative language here, but literally applied now to Jesus here, treads on the waves of the sea. It's good for us to remember that the waves of the storm, now figuratively speaking, that cause us to fear are under His feet. Jesus is sovereign over the storm. No matter how hard the winds blow or how high the billows roll. By the way, this Greek word translated ghost is is a term for spirit or apparition. The idea of a ghost... And you can understand their hysteria, right? It's not every day that you see someone walking on a body of water that's 140 feet deep in the context of wind blowing ferociously with 10 foot waves foaming all around. I imagine those guys, as they were rowing, found another gear. What do you think? I mean, I think if you see a ghost out here that you perceive as a ghost, you're the, I'm sure the big fisherman was really giving it all he had. So here they were, troubled, or as the EESV translates it, terrified, crying out in fear, it's a ghost! It's like the old boy from Tennessee who said, I didn't believe in ghosts either until I saw one, right? I mean, that was the disciples. I mean, they are believers in a ghost at this point. Suddenly they did believe in ghosts, but they thought they were seeing one anyway, and they cried out for fear. And how do you cry out for fear? I asked my wife this theological question. I said, well, How do you cry out for fear? She goes, Ah! I think that's kind of how it is, right? You just scream, Ah! It's a ghost! They were terrified. And they didn't have any place to go. I mean, what are you going to do? Bail? I mean, we're stuck in the boat here. This ghost is stalking us. He's coming. <laughs> Come on. Verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Immediately. He didn't wait and say, I'll be to just, you know, be terrified for a while. Continue to stalk him a little further. No, Immediately, he responded to their overwhelming fear, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Be of good cheer can be translated, be of good courage or take heart. And Jesus commanded them to take heart and not be afraid. Do not be afraid is more literally, stop being afraid. It's present imperative, meaning it is a command. And again, we see the lordship of Christ on display as he takes charge of the situation, commanding them what to do in a most intense situation. And the basis for them to take heart is seen in that little phrase, translated here in my New King James, it is I. It is all because of who is telling them not to be afraid. Peace is sourced in a person the Bible calls the Prince of Peace, whom we know... As Jesus. The Greek phrase translated, it is I, is more literally, I am. I love that. You know, God revealed himself as the eternal God to Moses back in Exodus 3 when Moses says, what shall I tell the people your name is? And he says, you go tell them that my name, my eternal name is I am. I am. Holman Christian Study Bible makes this comment. The statement is Jesus' purposeful echo of Old Testament texts like Exodus 3.14 and identifies him as Yahweh God. The Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew, consistently applies this phrase to God when he alone claims to have the power to rescue his people. Now the context would indicate that Jesus is using I am here in the sense of deity because he was doing and was about to do what only deity can do. That is show lordship over the laws of nature. And where the text rightfully goes is to the worship of Jesus as the son of God in verse 33. All of this would indicate that Jesus was saying, take heart because I am God. Therefore, do not be afraid, because I'm in charge of the weather, and I'm in control of your lives. Well, when the Almighty God tells you to take heart and not be afraid, you can rest easy, because He controls all things, including the whole of nature. And He is Lord of the sea and everything else. Verse 28, Peter got the message. Peter answered Him and said, Lord? If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Peter, consistently the leader and spokesman for the disciples, rightfully called Jesus Lord at this juncture. You see, Lord means master. That's what Lord means. It means master. And when properly used of Jesus, it refers to his sovereign authority, that he is the ultimate master who controls all. And Peter addresses him as Lord who has authority over all, including the forces of nature, saying, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it's you, the master of the storm, command me to come. Now, Peter could be impetuous, that is, rash, and impulsive, meaning giving no real forethought, And so here he goes on the fly, throwing out this wild idea about the Lord commanding him to come on the water. Now, you might want to think about that. What if he actually says, come? What are you going to do then? You've just called him Lord. Well, here's what happened. Verse 29. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. As I say, now, if you're Peter, you have another problem here, right? I mean, the one he has just called Lord has affirmed his suggestion that he command him to come. Now what? You dare not say, no, Lord. (laughs) Which, by the way, is a contradiction in terms. No and Lord do not go together. It's a contradiction. At this point, it would have been a little hard for Peter to say, well, well, wait a minute, maybe we ought to pray about this. (laughs) You don't have to pray about what the Lord is point-blank telling you to do. The obedience of faith just does it. And we have Peter doing that. And and there must have been authority in the Lord's voice when he said, Come. I don't think it was a timid suggestion like, Okay, then, come. (laughs) I don't think so. I think it was powerful and authoritative. The master of the waves says, come. And with that command, Peter knew Jesus' voice. And he went bounding out of the boat, starting to walk on the water towards Jesus. Now it's easy to get on Peter. It's easy to get on Peter, right? I mean, he's one of those guys who's putting his foot in his mouth all the time. It's easy to get on him, but let's give him a little credit. You know, none of the other disciples had the faith to even suggest this, right? None of the others got out of the boat. Let's see, John said, I'm with you, Peter. <laughs> Peter, you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> we'll pray for you. Uh, none of the others got out of the boat. I am sure they were all there with their mouths wide open, flabbergasted that Peter was indeed walking on the water towards Jesus. Can you see what? Wow, look at this. It's not every day you see somebody walking on the water. 140 feet deep. William MacDonald says, Peter sensed that Jesus' commands are his enablements, that he gives strength for whatever he orders. Again, Jesus is teaching the disciples. And the lesson is that at his command, they can do the impossible by the power of Christ. There are two great truths in the New Testament. Number one, without Christ, we can do nothing. And number two, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can't do anything on our own, but we can do all things that Christ commands us to do by his empowerment. By the way, Peter is the only other person in the history of the world to miraculously walk on water other than the Lord himself. And of course, he did it only at the command of Christ by the enablement of Christ. Verse 30, The story continues. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And you understand, he's a a seasoned fisherman. Peter the fisherman. He knew the Sea of Galilee. He knew danger when he saw it. When he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, Peter was bold and brash, often at times. But he was also very human. Peter did indeed, by faith, walk on the water at the command of Christ. By the way, what is faith? Faith in the Scriptures is taking God at his word. God says it. I believe it. And the fact that I believe it shows in the fact that I act on it. Faith is simply taking God at his word. And this is what Peter did. Jesus said to come. And Peter, in faith, responded. Faith appropriates the truth of God personally. So, so Peter started out really good. I mean, he's walking by faith here. I mean, he's taking Jesus Christ at his word. Come. Now, we don't know how far Jesus was from the boat, but it must have been a ways. Uh, and as Peter got out there, somewhere between the boat and Jesus, he began to look around at the wind and the waves, and, and suddenly natural reasoning started to kick in. During strong storms on the Sea of Galilee, the waves can be 10 feet high. And you know what? That has a way of getting your attention. It's kind of hard to just ignore 10-foot waves, right? And you kind of wonder, when Jesus is walking on, on the water, I mean, the, the water is going like this. Is he, is he climbing up on those waves, going down on those waves? I mean, how is this? I, I have no idea, but he was on top of them. I do know that. Took his eyes off Jesus and looking around, he failed to apply the command of Christ to not be afraid. Very human. This is so like us. Instead, seeing the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Now we know from other texts that Peter knew how to swim. We see this in other texts like John chapter 21. But now, evidently, being out in the middle of the lake, And some distance from the boat and being a ways off from Jesus with nothing but 10-foot waves in between, he was terrified. He lost sight of Jesus and all he could see was the reality of those terrifying waves. One of them could take you under and that would be it. Peter initially stepped out in faith, but now he's lost sight of the word of Christ. Faith was now lacking and he was sinking fast. But even in that, there was still a little faith because he cried out, Lord, save me. That's a statement of faith. You can do something about this. I'm believing in you. You're my only hope. Once again, Peter uses the right designation saying, Lord, Lord, save me. As sovereign master, he can do something about this crisis. By the way, this is one of the best prayers in the Bible. I love it. And say, well, I'm going, to have, I'm going to have to have a season of prayer here. No, Lord, save me. It was a very short prayer. And sometimes those are the most powerful prayers. He prayed in earnest from the heart. Believe me, this was a heartfelt prayer. <laughs> this was everything in him. This was not like a phony prayer. Uh, this was from the heart. Didn't even say amen. It was just, Lord, save me. I don't know how long it takes. You know, it doesn't take long to, to call on the name of the Lord, right? I sometimes think about people, you know, going down in a plane crash or something. How many of those people get saved? It doesn't take long, right? Lord, save me! Yeah, I mean, you call, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, here's Peter. Of course, he's a believer at this point. This is not, not the cry of an unbeliever. Peter is a believer. He has faith. Little. But he has faith. He's a believer. He's a believer at this point. He had faith, but in the midst of the storm, he lost focus. And his faith began to wane. It took great faith to get out of the boat, but now, in the midst of the storm, as he's looking around, his faith is beginning to wane. He began to doubt. He started losing sight of what the Lord said. But in this crisis, he still had some faith to call on Jesus to save him. So the problem here was a weak faith that began to doubt as Peter put his eyes on Jesus. His crisis, circumstances. By way of application here, just application here, the act of saving faith in one way or another expresses this, Lord, save me. It sees Jesus as both Lord and Savior, which is the essence of saving faith. Jesus is the Lord who can save. He can be Savior because of who he is as Lord. You know, that's that's what it took to took to save Peter in this situation, right? No one less than the Lord was up to this challenge. I mean, who can bring Peter up out of this kind of a storm? Who could do that? John couldn't do it. Nobody else could do it. It required the Lord. He is the Lord who has the power and the authority to save. And that is why Lord and Savior is an indivisible package. But Then having recognized Christ as Lord and Savior, the challenge is to be consistent with the truth that we now know to be true in our walk. It's all about being consistent with the truth we've come to believe in. And that was the situation with Peter. David Jeremiah says, Whenever believers divert their eyes from Jesus in the midst of a storm, their circumstances assume prominence, and they, like Peter, lose heart and begin to sink. The difference between fear and faith is focus. That's true. Focus on the Savior, not the storm. It's a good life lesson there. There's always going to be the storms. There's going to be the crisis situations. Where's our focus? We need to refocus often. Come back to Jesus. Verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith. Why, why did you doubt? Note the Lord responded immediately to the prayer, Lord, save me. And isn't that wonderful? I'm glad Jesus didn't say, Peter, I'm going to teach you the hard way. When you're coming up for the third time, I'll, I'll help you. No, he didn't do that. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Instantly, when Peter cried out in effect, help me, Lord, save me. Instantly, Jesus answered that crisis prayer. And I don't mock Christ's prayers. If they're from the heart, they're good prayers. How many times in our walk do we get off track and suddenly find ourselves in dire straits, we cry out, help, Lord. And when we do, Jesus is there. He is there for us, even in our weakness, even in our failures, even in our little faith. Note it wasn't Peter who caught hold of Jesus Lunge out. I got you. No, it wasn't Peter who caught hold of Jesus. It was Jesus who caught Peter and lifted him right back on top of the water. But just that quick, just that quick, Peter also got a stern lesson. Evidently, as the two were walking back to the boat, Jesus said to Peter, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? It was a rhetorical question, of course. I mean, how do you answer that? Uh, It's rhetorical and it's self-evident. It was because Peter took his eyes off the Lord when he saw the wind was so boisterous. And there's no excuse for it. But that is what happened. As I say, Peter was very human too. Immediately, Jesus caught Peter out of the water and immediately he rebuked him as well. Peter started out well, full of faith at the command of the Lord, but then in the midst of his circumstances, he doubted. The command of the Lord should have been sufficient. We know this, textbooks, right? We know the textbook truth of it. After all, Jesus was there all along. After all, Peter recognized him as Lord. But again, this is so human. I certainly don't put myself above Peter, Man, I remember one time we were flying from here to Ecuador and we hit one of those crazy wind turbulences. Middle of the night, we were all sleeping, and that plane just dropped. And everybody began to scream, including me. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I'm not doing any better than Peter. (laughs) I was terrified, I was scared out of my mind. It's funny, I thought of Peter at that moment. We're all so human, we know the word of the Lord. We know he is the master. we know he is sovereignly in control. We know these things. We believe it. I mean, if Peter didn't believe it, he never would have got out of the boat. He believed it. He was a believer, a true believer, but very human as we all are. We know the Lord's promises, but it's so easy, isn't it, to get distracted and just that quick have a bout of doubting. Oh, no, we don't completely lose our faith. No. But in the moment, we have little faith because our spiritual life is suddenly out of focus. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder, meaning the trailblazer and perfecter, that is, completer of our, more literally, the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you remain strong and on course in the faith? Well, keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who models and lived out faith to perfection. Being our great high priest, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And being at the right hand of God, He is at the throne of grace to give mercy and grace to help us in our time of need as we call on Him. He helps us in our weakness. He helped Peter in his weakness. He's there for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we come to Him and come boldly to the throne of grace to receive that help in time of need, in the time of our weakness. Peter teaches us a great lesson. In our walk of faith, We must ever keep our focus on Jesus and His Word. And I submit to you, we need that in these turbulent times in which we live and the storms we're going through in this life. we got to stay focused on Jesus. There is so much to distract us and cause fear. If I start just thinking about my circumstances, I am terrified for my grandchildren. I mean, it's crazy what they're doing out here. It's unbelievable. The things that are happening today... (laughs) just a few short years ago, we would not have even imagined it. It's crazy. Difficult circumstances can be a big distraction. And being human, we are very susceptible to doubting and being weak in our faith. And we're all human here. We must stay focused, lest we hear the words of Jesus in our experience, so to speak. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? I have no excuse for my bouts of doubting. How about you? It's a great question that the Lord would ask. Well, you have little faith. Why? Why are you doubting me? You know I'm the Lord. But I would encourage us, I would encourage us that even in our weakness, if we have a bout with doubt, don't you like that phrase? About with doubt. I'm a poet and don't know it. But anyway, uh, Even in our weakness, if we have a bout with doubt, even so, Christ is not done with you, fellow believer. He uses these failures as a teachable moment, even as he did in the case of Peter. Even in our little faith, he is very merciful. This is yet another lesson on the lordship of Jesus. He is sovereign Lord who controls all. Peter said, Lord, if you command me, come. And then he said, Lord, save me. It's all about the lordship of Christ for Peter. Lord, command me. Lord, save me. It's lordship. In saving Peter, Jesus showed himself to be the Lord of all creation, who rescues those who in distress cry out to him as seen in Psalm 107. It's one of the great storm psalms in the book of Psalms. Thus, Jesus shows himself to be Lord, that is, Yahweh, as presented in the Old Testament scriptures, such as Psalm 107. Psalm 107, we pick it up, verse 25. He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. Who does this? In context, is, is Yahweh. The Lord's in charge of the storm. He commands, raises up stormy wind. They mount up to the heavens. You ever seen footage of this? I mean, YouTube, you know, storms out at sea in these ships. It's crazy what goes on in the sea. I'm not sure I want to get on a boat and go very far out there. It's just it's kind of scary. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. Oh yeah. I don't care who you are. Your soul's melting at that point. Just like like warm butter. Woo! They reel to and fro, stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end. Oh yeah. What happens then? They cry out to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distresses. Oh, that's beautiful. He waits until everybody's at their wits end and says, Hey, we're calling the one who can do something about this impossible situation. And then he answers. Who does this? Repeatedly, Psalm 107 says, It is the Lord, Yahweh, who does this. And here in Matthew 14, by way of application, we see the Lord Jesus doing this on a very personal level with Peter. And as we will see, the truth of this was not lost on the disciples. Verse 32. And when they got into the boat, I don't know how long a roll of stroll it was. I wonder, were they a hundred yards, two hundred? Uh, you know, how far away were they from the boat? Well they walk. I'm thinking they walk hand in hand back to the boat. I don't think Jesus, uh, Peter's letting go of Jesus. <laughs> I don't know how what exactly, but when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, when we consider the cross-reference passages, there's a lot condensed in this verse. As I say, it appears that Jesus and Peter walked back to the boat together as Jesus is giving Peter a little lesson about not doubting. But when they got into the boat, immediately the wind ceased. It went from ferociously boisterous, in verse 30, to being perfectly windstill. Perfectly. I mean, eerie windstill. I mean, how does that happen? You know, storms kind of taper off gradually. You not know, just... I mean, that doesn't happen. It's like a switch. Perfectly wind still. And not only that, we find in the cross-reference of John 6 that immediately the boat was at the destination to where they were going. Notice cross-reference here. in John chapter 6, verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat. <laughs> they weren't saying, you're a ghost, stay away. No, they willingly received him in at this point. And immediately... The boat was at the land where they were going. This too was a great miracle. I mean, they'd been three or four miles out to sea, in the middle of the sea. As stated in verse 24. But then Jesus coming on board, instantly they were at the land. That was a quick trip after all. I mean, it certainly had a miraculous ending. Blink, and they were there. You know, I think that's kind of like how it is in going to heaven. I've not been to heaven. I have no books to write. But uh, I think going to heaven is kind of like this. Immediately, the boat was at the land. Three, four miles out, they're there. You know, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. How does that happen? I don't know. But with God, all things are possible. We read in Psalm 107, to continue on there, verse 29, He calms the storm. Who who calms the storm? Well, Yahweh, Yahweh. So that its waves are still, then they are glad because they are quiet. Oh, yeah. So He guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. There again, Lord is Yahweh. And for His merciful works to the children of men. This miraculous experience with Jesus has all the character traits of Yahweh God as presented in Psalm 107. Moody Bible Commentary, God is the one who rescues his people from the sea. Jesus took that prerogative for himself and intimated that he was fulfilling this divine role. That's the point. If you're a Jew who knows the Old Testament Scriptures, you know this is God's territory. Verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. Here's the climax of the story. The disciples got it. Every Jew knew that God alone is to be worshipped. Worship is reserved for God alone. So in worshipping Jesus, they were recognizing him As God. It's unthinkable for a Jew who believed in one God, the God of the Old Testament Scriptures, to worship a man. But notice they knew he was more than man, saying, truly you are the Son of God. In worshiping Jesus, they were recognizing him as God. They knew that God alone controls nature. God alone controls the storm. So Jesus, in doing this, was clearly showing that he was God and therefore worthy to be worshipped as God. The word worship literally means to fall down before. It is to reverently recognize the superior greatness and awe of the one being worshipped. And worship attributes reverence to God that is worthy only of God. I like this statement from Ed Glasscock which puts the focus on God in worship. Worship cannot be generated from external activity. It flows from an inward attitude towards Christ. Too often, worship is associated with music or some other human activity. The people of God need to see His awesomeness, His power, His incredible grace. Then they will worship Him. Let the preacher focus on the God of Scripture to bring forth genuine worship that which is in spirit and in truth. Now, songs can indeed generate worship as long as they're truly God-oriented and word-centered. But too many songs called worship are in truth very man-centered, catering merely to human emotions and feel-good sentiments. True worship is always God-centered and causes one in their heart to bow before Him in humble adoration and awe. I call Psalm 29 the storm psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms. The whole emphasis is that the Lord's glory is seen in His power to control the storm. And I I, I love storms. I like to be in a safe place, but I love storms. I remember one time years ago, I was in my bed sleeping at night. That's normally where I sleep at night, by the way. I was in my bed sleeping. It was about middle of the night, And there was like, there was a a crack of thunder that, I think it was the loudest crack of thunder I've ever heard in my life. It was like it was right over my head. Brought me straight up out of my bed. And you know what I said? Glory. That's what I said. In the middle of the night. And Janie's looking at me. (laughs) Glory. (laughs) Psalm 29. Give to the Lord, almighty ones, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everyone says, say it with me, glory Wow!" The Jews knew that the glory of the Lord is seen in his power, which is on display in the storm. Jesus exhibited this power, this glory. And therefore, they rightly worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, we know what the Jews meant and understood by this phrase, Son of God, John 5, 18. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but said that God was his father making himself equal with God. You see, the title Son of God is a messianic title which designates the Messiah as one who comes forth from God and actually shares in the very nature of God. It's a way of saying that Jesus is God of very God. As we study the whole council of God, we find the reality of a triune God consisting of one Godhead and yet three persons that make up this God. The Trinity is a profound mystery, defies comprehension, and yet by faith we take God at His revelation. There's one God, and yet there's three persons that make up this Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, later that same day, Peter would again affirm this same truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, saying in John chapter 6, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living God. They indeed had come to believe. They had confessed this on the sea the night before. Verse 34. To finish out the chapter, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. The area of Gennesaret was on the western side of the lake. It was a very fertile plain, about four miles long, two miles wide. Also had a town in the center of it by that same name, uh, the name of Gennesaret. It was about five miles south of Capernaum. So note on the map here. Uh, where we're talking about, they uh, came to this area here, which is not far from Capernaum, and uh, so here's here's the territory we're talking about. Verse thirty-five. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick. At this point, wherever Jesus went in this whole region, a massive following was there, because the word was out that he could heal. And note here, they brought to him all. were sick. Verse 36, And begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Jewish men commonly wore tassels on the hem of their robes in accordance with the instruction in the Mosaic Law. Uh, These tassels came to be seen as symbols of holiness because they, as the covenant people, were called to be a holy people. The idea of merely touching the hem of his garment, uh, that it would bring healing, perhaps goes back to this woman who had a flow of blood. She was from Capernaum and earlier she had said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I shall be made well. And she was. And so perhaps news of that miracle occasion had gone around and gotten a reputation and kind of started to touch the hem of his garment movement. Well, Jesus had power over every realm, over the physical realm of disease, over the realm of demons, and over the realm of nature. Indeed, he is shown to be Lord over all at every juncture. And of course, this would be expected of Messiah God. Still, most of the people healed did not understand the significance of who Jesus really was. The disciples finally were getting it, as noted, but the multitudes were into Jesus pretty much for what he could do for them not because of who he was. Thus, they missed the central point. But there may be another reason for Matthew, including this footnote at the end of the chapter here uh, regarding Jesus' healing ministry. You see, the Pharisees thought it to be an abomination to rub shoulders with the common people, thinking one could easily contract ceremonial uncleanness if you touched an unclean person. But Jesus had no such concern He was never defiled by uncleanness. Instead, his power turned the unclean into clean. But this sets the stage for the confrontation with the religious leaders over clean versus unclean, as will be addressed in the next chapter, which we will segue into, Lord willing, next week. This is a true story from uh, Regis Nicole. And he speaks tongue-in-cheek, so understand it's tongue-in-cheek here. Uh, Vince, I think you sent this to me some time ago, but anyway, it makes the point. Uh, th- he, uh, this Regis guy says, while discussing the latest archaeological find, I mused aloud to my wife, "Hun, I was just thinking. The Gnostics pointed to the mystical Jesus. Eris pointed to the created Jesus. Muhammad pointed to the prophet Jesus. Higher criticism pointed to the historical Jesus. Liberal theology uh, points to the life model Jesus. Postmodernism points to the experiential Jesus. Dan Brown pointed to the mythical Jesus. Seems like an exploding trend of Jesus's. Huh? To which my ever brilliant and lovely wife replied, I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he said in the latter times, many will come saying, look, here is the Christ. And he said, "Hun, I think you're on to something. Well, where do we find the real Jesus? Well, we find him on the pages of holy scripture. We find him in history, in the fulfillment of prophecy. We find him doing what only God can do because indeed he is God, the God man. And if you have come to truly see him for who he is, if you have truly come to faith, then you have come to worship him for who he is as the son of God. True faith embraces him as Savior and Lord. As our Savior, he died for all of our sins. As Lord over all, he arose again the third day. And true believers, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, true believers are those who worship God in spirit, in the spirit. Be among them. Be a true worshiper, which is where Christ ultimately brought the true disciples. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close us in prayer.